Welcome to Village Church of Gurney Podcast. This week, as we celebrate the 4th of July, Pastor Brandon will be preaching a sermon called My Fellow Citizens. He will be preaching from Philippians 3, 17 through 21. Let's join Pastor Brandon now. So one of the most terrifying moments of my adult life took place right here at Village Church, uh, out on the uh, landing of the North Stairs. Uh, this is going back to about uh, 1998, and uh, I had uh, only been a pastor here for a short time, and I had not even yet met uh, Amy, who I would eventually marry. And uh, I had uh, I had done a few things with the. Uh, uh, the young single uh, adults group that we had here uh, at Village Church. Um, I, I was more plugged in with a men's accountability group, but I, I had done a, a couple of things with the, with the group as a whole. And uh, there was a, a young woman that I had met uh, very briefly, very casually uh, through uh, some social events. I, I, I don't remember her name uh, to this day. Uh, she has moved on from Village Church years ago. Uh, it's, it's a nice woman. Uh, it's my sister in the Lord. Um, I, I've, I've been racking my brains trying to think of a nice way to say this. Um, personality met someplace at the intersection of Perky and Scattered. Um, Anyway, so this, this, this one Sunday morning, so it's in between services, and I'm running up the stairs of the north stairwell to get up here for something, and this woman meets me at the top of the stairs. She had just come out of the lobby, was kind of out by where the elevator is, and, and as she sees me, she, she just lights up and says in the way that only she could say it, she goes, hi, Brandon. I'm not exaggerating by much. And I said, say, hi, how are you? And she goes, guess what? And I said, well, what? She goes, I'm getting married. And I say, well, that's great, congratulations. The conversation continues. And this woman says, and guess who's going to marry me? And I say, Who? And she looks at me and lights up even more, and she goes, you are! I froze. I absolutely froze. I mean, I have heard stories along this, these lines where uh, people will think that the Lord is speaking to them through visions and dreams about this wonderful future that he has appointed for them. And I'm like, well, you know, the Lord hasn't told me anything about this, but... Um, I am terrified, but this, this lady, bless her heart, she's completely oblivious to my terror and just continues on to tell me about how uh, her fiancé, I didn't even know she was dating anybody, but her fiancé had, uh, had just proposed to her, and she was hoping that I might be able to officiate at their wedding. I'm like, oh, you didn't want me to marry you, you just wanted me to marry you. I get it, and I, I'm on the outside, I'm, I'm trying to play it cool like I knew this all along, and, but on the inside, I'm like, Jesus, you are my shield and my deliverer. Thank you for watching over me in this moment of crisis. Uh, and I breathe the biggest sigh of relief inside that I have breathed in the last 25 years. You see, when you have a word 
that can have different meanings. Uh, but when those different meanings are still related to one another in a certain way, it, it can be confusing for us. If word meanings are distinct uh, from one another, if, if, if it's as clear as black and white, well, uh, it's usually pretty easy to understand what's being communicated. But when there's overlap or when there's nuance, uh, it can be more challenging. If you look kind of at this color gradient here, if I was to ask you, at what point here does blue become green? And it's, it, it's a little tricky to try and figure it out. And even as you would zoom in on this a little bit more, uh, it might even become more challenging. And uh, it can be that way also with word meanings. And I think it's significant that on this particular Sunday, where we, we've, we've gathered here, whether we're here in person, whether we're online, we've gathered to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, but this is also the day where we're celebrating uh, the 245th birthday of the United States of America. It just strikes me that there, there are a number of words that they're, they're near and dear to us as followers of Jesus. And these same words are near and dear to us as Americans. Um, and these words can share some common DNA. But in other ways, these words carry quite different meanings depending on the way that you're applying. Here, here's just an example. Let's do a quick word association game here. Uh, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you when, when I say the word freedom? Especially here at the 4th of July, maybe you think of freedom in terms of maybe the original 13 colonies that, that declared independence from, uh, from the British monarchy. Uh, founding fathers, I think they hit the nail on the head when they, they pointed out that all humans... Because they have been created in the image of their creator, we have certain inalienable rights that we have been given. And in many ways, the last 245 years of American history has been defined by the pursuit of those freedoms that are inherently ours as image bearers of God. Yeah, there have been times that it's been a struggle. And there have even been times when it's been a battle, not just within this nation, but beyond the borders of this nation, to make sure that all image bearers, to make sure that all people have full access to these freedoms. But when you look at the word freedom in Scripture, there's a different gradient with that word. Scripture definitely teaches that all humans are created in the image of God. No question about it. But Scripture also teaches that humans have rebelled against God and that the image of God within us has been distorted by sin. We have this built-in propensity as humans to declare our independence from God uh, day in and day out, and we experience the consequences of that, certainly in this life. And if it wasn't for God's saving grace, we would experience it in the life to come as well. But when you ask somebody, what does freedom mean? If you think about it from a civic perspective... From an American perspective, it's an oversimplified answer, but you might say that freedom is having the ability to do what you want. Freedom is having the ability to do what you choose. But if you ask somebody, what does freedom mean from a biblical perspective? 
You'd be more accurate to say, well, freedom is the ability to do what is right and to be free from the bondage of sin and to be free to pursue what our Creator has truly created us for, which is to be a reflection of His image throughout all of His creation. This is where the gradient, as you start peeling back some of these layers, the gradient starts to get pretty black and white different. See, if we're not careful to, to define what we mean when we use different words, the lines get kind of blurry, and, and it can get confusing for us. And, and as people who are Christians, and for those of us who are Americans, we have to go a little bit further to make sure that the civic definition of words like freedom or, or liberty or other words like that, we don't skew our biblical understanding of what these words mean in Scripture. Because if we take a civic understanding of these words and we start imposing it upon Scripture, then we start to miss the mark of what God is wanting to say to us as followers of Christ. And this passage that we're going to study this morning here, it highlights one of those words that it's important for us to carefully understand what God's word means when it uses a particular word. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 3. And our word of the day that we're going to come upon in this passage is the word citizenship. When the Bible uses the word citizen, or when the Bible uses the word citizenship, what does the Bible mean when it says this word? Philippians 3, we'll begin uh, in verse 17 here in a little bit. If you're using your pew Bibles, it's page 1166. But as you're getting to Philippians 3, let me give you just a bit of context for where we find ourselves here in the narrative of Scripture. Paul is writing the letter of Philippians from prison. Paul is literally in chains uh, as he's writing this letter because he's been preaching about Jesus. Uh, Paul got in a lot of trouble for preaching about Jesus. He got in trouble from a religious standpoint, from Jewish religious leaders, and he got in trouble from a civic standpoint with the Roman government. There's actually there's a story in Acts 22. Just make a note of this and, and read it later on. There's a story in Acts 22 where you have the Jewish leaders wanting Paul to be beaten and whipped because he's been preaching about Jesus. But the Jewish leaders tried to use a civic solution to solve a religious problem. And they want the Roman government to carry out this punishment against Paul. Now, Paul, Paul is a, a sharp guy. Paul knows that because he is a Roman citizen, there are certain rights that he has as a citizen. And when he was in this tough spot, Paul absolutely played the card that I'm a Roman citizen. He says, I haven't had a civic trial but now you're going to give me a civic punishment for a religious dispute, and I even haven't had a civic trial yet? And there's this huge commotion that breaks out in the days that follow. The commotion, it even turns violent at times. Paul is moved away to what we would call today, or we call, call it a secure location for, for his, own, uh, his own protection and, and for the, uh, the common good, the civic good. And eventually Paul comes to have his civic trial. Now, see if you can keep track of all of this. You have in this Roman civic trial, you have Jewish religious leaders who are the plaintiffs. You have a Jewish teacher turned Christian apostle Paul as the defendant. You have presiding over the trial, you have a Roman governor, Felix, who is married to a Jewish woman, Drusilla. You see how there's a lot of plot lines that kind of tie in with this one? 
Well, there's a long story short. Paul, Paul ends up remaining in prison for a couple of years. He, even though he's a Roman citizen, the trial doesn't entirely uh, go his way. But at least during the time while he's in prison, Paul, Paul is not in what we would consider to be a maximum security setting. Paul does have some privileges that are available to him. Well, one of these privileges is that he can have visitors uh, that can come and uh, spend time with him. And so what happens is that these visitors will come and bring Paul news of what is happening in many of the churches that he has involved and been involved with uh, directly planting, as well as other churches that have uh, begun throughout the Roman Empire. And it's during this time that Paul writes the letter of Philippians short book. Uh, it's only four chapters long. But this, this is one of my favorite books in the entire New Testament. And uh, in, in Philippians 3, we reach a place in the story where Paul, from prison, uh, begins to list off all of the things that he once had going for him, so to speak. Especially as it relates to his life as a devout Jew, as a Jew of Jews, but then Paul says, whatever I had going for me, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Jesus. In fact, knowing Jesus is so much greater. It's like that all of these things that I once had going for me, it's now, it's like a pile of manure by comparison. So Paul is literally saying there, because Paul says, all of this, all of this, it's now in the past, and I want it to be as far in the past as it possibly can be, because I just want to press on to know Jesus more. He's so much greater. I want to press on to make Jesus and knowing Jesus my own, because Jesus has made me his own. And we get down to verse 17, Paul from prison in Rome, writing to the church of Philippi, he says, brothers, gender-neutral use of the term, it means brothers and sisters here, says, brothers, join in imitating me. Everything that I've just said in these preceding verses about pressing on for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus and knowing his righteousness and knowing his resurrection power, imitate me. Press on with all you've got in your own unique way, but press on with all you've got. Paul knows that even though he's writing from this Roman jail to these, this church in Philippi, he knows there are people within this local community of Christ followers in Philippi that they're already doing this. He goes on to say, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The people that you have within your church community who are imitating me, the people who are following our example of pressing on to know Jesus above all else, look at those people, pick those people out of the crowd, lock in on them, and follow their example. There's a question. In what ways is your life worthy of imitating when it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to knowing Jesus? 
are the people that you have in your life that have given you an example to follow? Make a note of this. Think about this here today and the days ahead. Boy, wouldn't it be wonderful if, especially for that second part of that question, if we just just had a long list of people that we knew who really gave us an example of what it meant to press forward with all that they had for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. But sadly for many of us, that's not the case. And it certainly wasn't the case back in the first century either. Paul goes on to write in verse 18, he says, for many, he doesn't say for a few, he doesn't say for some, he says for many of whom I've often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now Paul's talking about these people. He's not just talking about people who have never made the decision to be a follower of Jesus. That is certainly in mind, but that's not the only thing that Paul has in mind. He also has in mind people who once upon a time were followers of Jesus, but they have fallen away from the faith. And he has a third group of people in mind, people who are within the church at Philippi, but their lives are simply not following the example of pressing forward to know Jesus. And it's not the first time either that Paul has had a conversation with the Philippian church about these people because he's talking about how he has often told them about this. So what do these enemies of the cross look like? What, what, what do they live like? Verse 19, Paul says their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Sounds an awful lot like people that like using their freedom to do whatever they want, doesn't it? That's the fruit of the life of an enemy of the cross. Because the cross says... Okay, if Jesus took up his cross for us, if Jesus carried his cross for us, if Jesus gave his life for us, then we take up our cross to follow him. We take up our cross because we want to love him and we want to serve him and we want to live for him and we want to do what is right because it's in losing our lives that we will find them. But the enemies of the cross, it's all about what I have going for me. I I press on to take hold of self. I press on to take hold of what I want so that I can please myself, so that I, I can lift up myself and exalt myself. And you know something? It can be a lot of fun to do that type of thing with a bunch of people who they have that same desire as well. But do you notice how Paul responds when he begins talking about the enemies of the cross? Look back at verse 18. He says, I tell you about these people, even with tears. Don't skip over that. Notice that. He 
You see, it's true that we, we live in a time right now that's it's, it's very much like the first century in so many ways. There are many people that, who live as enemies of the cross, and the fruit of their lives, it matches up with what we see here in verse 19. In these ways and in many other ways, there's a lot that is common with the first century time and what we have here in the 21st century. But this is where I see a difference. It's how people who are friends of the cross respond to all of this. Because all too often, people who are friends of the cross can respond to enemies of the cross either with apathy or with anger. Come across somebody who's an enemy of the cross and we, 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 can, we can just be numb. We don't care. You know, fine. Do, do what you want. You know, live, live your life the way you want. I, I, I don't care. And there's this hard-heartedness that, that comes in with that. But then you can have other people who their apathy, it's, it, it comes across the opposite way. It's like, fine, do whatever you want. It's all good. And that's a different type of apathy that brings with it its own challenges. Because not everything is okay to do. And it's sad that many people who claim to be friends of the cross, they have apathy. Maybe it's in one form, maybe it's in the other form, but they're apathetic towards enemies of the cross. Both these extremes miss the mark. I think it's equally sad that many people who claim to be friends of the cross are angry towards enemies of the cross. Now, I do agree that there is a place for righteous anger. When the, when the message of the gospel is disregarded. There is a place for righteous anger when, when sin is put up on a pedestal and is treated as the ideal. There is a place for righteous anger, but so much of the anger that friends of the cross can show towards enemies of the cross, it, it's not anger that's born out of the Holy Spirit. It's anger that is born out of fallen human nature. When you say, well, Brandon, how do you know the difference between the two? Well, I, we can talk about this a lot, but let me just give you one example here to consider. Is your anger the, the fruit? Is it the byproduct of, of your love for God and, and your love for other people and because you have such a desire, you want to see God's kingdom come. You want to see God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so anytime that you see anything but God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, there's just something that has moved from deep within you where there's this sense of holy jealousy or there's this sense of righteous compassion or there's this aching desire. You just want to see God exalted and you want to see people's lives transformed and anything that stands in the way of that can't help but move you to action? Or is your anger born out of fear? And you, you look around you, you, you see things change, and you, you don't want things to change. You, you don't like the way things are changing, and maybe for a very good reason. But in your desire to want to stop the snowball of change from rolling down the hill any further, what happens is that you begin to approach people who are enemies of the cross as, as your opponents. And there are people to be battled rather than approaching them as people who are created in the image of God and 
approaching those people who Jesus died for. It's easy for us to get, especially for those of us who have been Christians for a good long while. It can be easy for us to forget, just like what Romans 5 says, that at one point in time, all of us were enemies of Jesus. You see, a righteous anger, it's born out of an understanding of the full implications of the gospel. And it bears the fruit of humility. Human anger is more born out of a desire to to fight to be right or a desire to, to fight to win. And it bears the fruit of pride. A righteous anger moves people to tears. That's what we see here with Paul. Fallen human anger, it's nothing more than, than harshness and nastiness. It's possible to be angry about the right things, but in the wrong way for the wrong reasons. Another question, how do you respond when you encounter enemies of the cross? How do you respond when you find yourself surrounded by the fruit of their fallen lives, the rotten fruit of their fallen lives? Do you respond with apathy? In any of its forms, do do you respond with anger? Why? How? For me, I, I want to I become more like Paul. I want to imitate Paul in this way. Because when I look at Paul in this way, I see Jesus in Paul. And I want, I want to become more like Jesus. I want to be moved to tears for the right reasons when I encounter people who are enemies of the cross. Because I want to press on. I, I see Jesus in this, and I want to know this Jesus more. Brothers and sisters, as Christians, we are different We have a different identity. That's what Paul unpacks in verses 20 and following. Paul writes, he says, but, and he's using this just to draw a clear line of demarcation, distinguishing between what he has just talked about and what he is about to talk about. He says, but, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. Full stop. Let's understand some things about first century culture, first century mindset here. When you use the word citizen, when you use the word citizenship, this was a big deal. The first century, your citizenship, this was in fact at the center of your identity as a person. Your citizenship was front and center to the person that you are. It was front and center for the priorities that you had in your life. It was front and center for your ethics and your behavior. Your citizenship defined where your true and ultimate allegiance rested. Now Paul, again, writing this letter to the Philippians, Paul's a Roman citizen. It's recorded elsewhere in Scripture where Paul says this about himself. Paul does not hide the fact that he's a Roman citizen. Paul even uses his rights as a Roman citizen to his own advantage. But when Jesus entered the picture in Paul's life, everything changed. See, when Paul received the gift of forgiveness and salvation and eternal life that Jesus made possible for him through the cross and through the resurrection, at that moment, Paul became a citizen of heaven. And Paul's citizenship in heaven through Jesus, it became the center of his identity as a person. 
his citizenship in heaven, it became front and center for the priorities that he had in his life, for, for his ethics, for his behavior. Paul's citizenship in heaven defined where his true and ultimate allegiance rested. Now notice that Paul doesn't renounce his Roman citizenship. In fact, Paul has dual citizenship. But it's very clear that for Paul, that he sees his status as a citizen of heaven, which has been made possible by the grace and mercy of Jesus, that takes precedence above all else. Whatever was to Paul's profit, he now considers loss for the sake of Christ. As you look through others of Paul's letters, you know, some of the autobiography that he includes in some of his letters that he writes, and then as you read in places uh, like the book of Acts uh, about uh, some of the biography that other people write about Paul, you come to see just how completely, utterly, totally Paul's life was changed because of how he saw himself as a citizen of heaven. And that includes changing the way that he viewed himself as a citizen of Rome. He had dual citizenship, but he didn't have dual allegiance. Don't misunderstand what this means. You don't see Paul going out of his way to speak ill of his country. You don't see Paul going out of his way to speak ill of the governors or of the emperor. And goodness knows that back at that time there was plenty that he could have spoken ill of because there was a lot that was going on in first century Rome that was completely opposite of the gospel of Jesus and was completely opposite to the character of a holy and righteous God. But that just doesn't, that's not Paul's modus operandi. That's just not how Paul rolls with things. What it simply means is that as Paul pursued Jesus, as Paul actively sought to know Jesus more, Paul became an ambassador for his true home, which is heaven. And Paul became an ambassador for his true ruler, who is Jesus. As he lived among the people of the Roman Empire. Because Paul wanted God's kingdom to come. Paul wanted God's will to be done in the Roman Empire and throughout the earth just like it is in heaven. I have to say this morning. I, I, I am thankful. I am thankful to be an American citizen. I am blessed to be an American citizen. Um, I'm humbled by this because I know that there are people who uh, have sacrificed much, some who sacrificed more than much, to make it possible for me to be a citizen of this nation and to enjoy the blessings and the freedoms that come with that. Our nation is not perfect. It has had flaws and shortcomings in the past. It has flaws and shortcomings here in the present, but... This is a nation that I, I am grateful to live in. I, I truly am. But by the same time, but by the grace of God, I have dual citizenship. I am a citizen of heaven. And my true and ultimate allegiance is to my citizenship in heaven. Because I want to see God's kingdom come. 
I want to see God's will be done in the United States of America and throughout the earth, just like it is in heaven. And I don't want this, I'm not seeking this or desiring this because of some desire that I have to make America great or whatever. I have a desire for this because Jesus is great. He's great yesterday, he's great today, and he will be great forever. As I pursue Jesus and as I seek to know Jesus more, as I, as I make myself available for, for his spirit to work in me and through me as, as an ambassador of heaven and as my fellow citizens of heaven, do these things as well. It's not just that America is going to be blessed and changed. The whole world will be changed. Because the Holy Spirit will be working through us so that God's kingdom will come, so that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven because the gospel of Jesus is going to be on full display, full of grace and truth through those of us who are citizens of heaven. And God will care for the needs of our nation. God will care for the needs of the people of our nation as a byproduct of kingdom work as Jesus is renewing and restoring and, and healing and transforming transforming people's minds and hearts and souls and lives and he's transforming families and communities in this nation and the entire world and everything around us. Third and final question on this Independence Day holiday. When you think of the word citizen, what comes to mind for you? Do you understand what it means to be a citizen of heaven? Have you accepted the gift of eternal life? that Jesus makes available for you? Do you understand what it means to have dual citizenship and why allegiance to your citizenship in heaven is worthy of being greater than any and all other allegiances in your life? Do you understand how living your life as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven can, can transform the nation that you live in? It can transform the nation that you love and care for as the Lord uses you life by life by life by life. And those that you encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. When, when we pray or say or, or sing the words, God bless America, do we understand that God wants to work through those of us who are citizens of heaven to be that instrument of blessing in the lives of our fellow Americans and for all their peoples as well? There are so many implications for us to think about. There's so, much, so many challenges that we need to wrestle with, but it's all worth it. It is all worth it because of the gospel, for the sake of the gospel, for the kingdom of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I, uh, I, I stand here today having so, so, so much to be thankful for. Even as I was getting ready, um, to come over here this morning is thinking about there are people who will be doing just what I'm doing today, uh, preaching your word in different parts of the world. And um, they may never come home because they're going to be arrested or they will be kidnapped, executed. Um, it's only a one in a million chance that 
something like that would happen here today. I know these, these things happen, and I, I'm saddened when it does happen, but such a different situation, God, that we have here in the United States. And uh, I thank you for that. We thank you for that. Uh, we do pray, God, that you would continue to work in our nation. I pray, God, that you would allow a spirit of repentance pour out over us, that, that we would not only seek your forgiveness, but God, that, that we would turn our backs on the ways that we dishonor you with our thoughts and our, our attitudes and our actions. And, and God, I would even pray that you would begin that work with, within your church and those of us who, are, who would claim to be friends of the cross, who those would identify ourselves as citizens of heaven, and that work of repentance and humility begin with us so that as others may see us, even though they may not agree with us, even though they may not understand us, that they would see something different about us, that they would see you in us, Jesus. And, and for as many as possible, um, use us, God, to draw people into your kingdom, to bring people to an understanding of the gospel. So that people not just from the United States, but people from every tribe and nation and people and language will be packed out in heaven someday as we're gathered around your throne, standing before you, worshiping you in spirit and in truth. Do these things for the sake of your great name, Jesus. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to Village Church of Gurney's podcast. If you would like to know more about Village Church, you can go to our Facebook page under Village Church of Gurney or go to www.bcgurney.org.